after a couple of drinks, they would just start to say, you know, I'm so sick of the finger wagging from the, I don't need, you know, drive a Prius with my coexist sticker, you know, drinking my coffee culotte out of my paper straw. And I'm like, what are you guys talking about? I, honestly, like that, it was just like these people that I thought were my peers that were, were speaking as if they're in a foreign country from me. Like, I don't like paper straws either, but Donald Trump, uh, you know, we're going to support Donald Trump because of it. I, it's insane. This is Sarah Stewart Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Welcome to Pantsuit Politics. We're so glad you're here with us as we take a different approach to the news. On today's show, we're thrilled to be talking to Tim Miller, former Republican, current analyst and writer, and someone with a great perspective on how the Republican Party got to this point. Outside of politics, we're going to talk about the recent experiences we both had going to New York to see Into the Woods. And before we do any of that, we're going to check back in with the ongoing war in Ukraine. Before we do, I need to give a special shout out to Philip and Emily. Philip bought a cameo for Emily from us so that we could wish her happy birthday. And he sent us the best video of his own to tell us really about did. Emily. It was awesome. It felt like a gift to us. It did. Not a gift to Emily. It was a present. And I was not feeling well. And it took us longer than usual to return it. And Philip was so gracious about it. And we just want to say again, happily, happy birthday, Emily. And thank you, mm-hmm. Philip, for being awesome, both in the way you requested this gift for your wife and in being so patient with us. Yes. Yes, I agree with all of that. He called us a refuge family, and I was like, that is the nicest compliment I have ever received. All right, up next, we're going to get into our processing of uh, some of what's going on in the world, beginning with Ukraine. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. 
I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. All right, the Russian army launched a large-scale invasion of the nation of Ukraine on February 24th. So we are now 176 days in by the time you listen to this episode, which is hard to believe. Now, the invasion began on three fronts. But very quickly, as we all remember, Russia abandoned its goal of capturing Kiev and withdrew from most of the north of Ukraine. They became really focused on the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, sort of up a little bit from Crimea, which we know that they had previous conflicts around. And by mid-July, Russia had occupied most of the Luhansk region in particular. Now, this was a symbolic victory, but they didn't gain a lot of new territory. And they were losing lots and lots and continue to lose lots and lots of soldiers killed in action. And I think, Beth, it's fair to say now that the counteroffensive we've all been waiting for from Ukraine has begun. They received a lot of weapons and support and continue to receive a lot of weapons and support from the West and have begun to fight back. Even this was kind of this caught me a little off guard, even striking targets in Crimea, sort of going behind the lines and trying to, if not, quote unquote, recapture, definitely sow some discord There was a great write-up in the New York Times about the soldiers going back into those areas and just sort of creating the sense of, like, you are safe nowhere, Russians, if you are in Ukraine. And also, sadly, there's this kind of punishing tone towards Ukrainians who are working Mm. at all with with the Russian-controlled version of state that's happening there. The Wall Street Journal has a really interesting piece, too, about American veterans going over to help train Ukrainians who Mm -hmm. have no fighting experience whatsoever. All I've been able to think about as I continue to follow what's happening in Ukraine is that there is no clean version of war ever. The more detail you understand about any kind of conflict, the less clarity you'll start to feel. And it just makes me wish that there had been some way to prevent this, because Mm -hmm. once you're in everybody is in so far and and you lose sight of where it began and how it might end. I read a piece about polling around Ukrainians on any sort of peace negotiation, any sort of settlement, any particularly any agreement that cedes territory to Russia. And it was a big, strong no. And like, you can't blame them. Like what Mm -hmm. with when you see what happened with Crimea and then the resulting invasion, like I'm not I'm not angry at anyone in Ukraine, and I totally understand that perspective, and it makes an exit from the scenario seem so incredibly difficult. And I don't want that for the Ukrainian people either. I don't want them engaged in this conflict for five, 10 years, but it is. I think you're right. I think once you're in it, 
I don't know how we got clean narratives ever around war that we would there would be we would go in, there would be a clear end, there would be a winner. I mean, we don't even and I think the idea is that, you know, that was disrupted by Vietnam. But you don't have to go that far back in history to see these. Like They called it the Hundred Year War. You think that had a clear end and a clear winner? No, of course not. Back in the, you know, the Middle Ages that these conflicts become so complicated and just exhausting and tragic and terrible consequences for both sides. It makes me think about, I was having an exchange with our longtime listener, Berta, about Taiwan. How when you see reporting that actually speaks to Taiwanese people, their mm. perspective on the threat from China is so different from what you might imagine if you just took in American reporting. People who live in these places where the conflict unfolds. And I, I would love to find more of this kind of reporting around what's happening uh, with Tigre. But people who live in these mm-hmm. places, it's both unimaginably worse in many ways to have a threat or an active conflict unfolding around you, but also better in in a lot of ways that than we might anticipate and neutral in many other ways it's just you can't you can't tell a story that encapsulates this experience much like i can imagine that people not living in the united states would think that living here is much better and much worse in many ways than it is with all the domestic terror threats that we have with school shootings your brain just adapts to whatever the reality is and so I think our brains try to shrink what's happening somewhere else as part of our ways of adapting. Yeah. And I try to figure out how it, how is it that I can follow the conflicts in these places without doing that and also without kind of, you know, losing my grip on a sense of, of happiness in the world. I think all the time about reporting I heard from Aleppo at the very beginning of the Syrian civil war that the reporting was so dire. And I remember this merchant in Aleppo, and he's like, no, it's just Aleppo. Like, that. We, this is this is how we exist here. This is the background sort of of what has always existed there. And he wasn't dismissive. He lived there. And perhaps his perspective changed as the Civil War in Syria, you know, got worse and worse and worse. But I, I think about that a lot. Like, it was not what I expected to hear from someone on the ground. I think you're right. I think it is simultaneously worse and better in so many ways. And the perspective is more integrated into your everyday life than a way it can ever be if you're reading, reporting from far away. I mean, you know, all the reports from Kiev is that life has begun and in many ways gotten back to quote unquote normal, um, why this ongoing conflict in other parts of the country continues. You know, I think that sort of integrating that in your experience is is in some ways the best and worst adaptation, right? And maybe that's what happens with war is that you find a way to continue because you have to, but in finding that way to continue, you stretch out the conflict because it loses the stakes lower when you can find a way to, to exist inside this environment. It's what we did with COVID, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, that's not a perfect metaphor for sure. And I and I don't mean it in a way that's harmful at all. But I think that adaptation and the stretching out of it and how mm-hmm. it it's never really over. It just kind of fizzles is yep. like the way that a lot of this unfolds. And I think that's what's going to continue to happen in Ukraine. The situation is going to continue. It's going to continue to evolve. I don't know if it will fizzle out. I'm not I'm not comfortable predicting. No. What's going to happen in Ukraine between the Ukrainians and the Russians. But the situation will continue to evolve. Of that, I am confident. And we will continue to talk about it here on the show. 
Up next, we're going to talk about a very different type of slow movie disaster, the Republican Party with Tim Miller. Tim Miller is an MSNBC analyst, writer at large at The Bulwark, and author of the new book, Why We Did It, a travel log from the Republican road to hell. He was the communication director for Jeb Bush's 2016 presidential campaign and a spokesman for the Republican National Committee during Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign. He has since left the GOP and become one of the leaders of the Never Trump movement. So up next, Tim Miller. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsuit.
Welcome back to Pansy Politics. We always love it. It is have so you good our- to be back. It is so good to yes. be back. I've, I've heard, you know, every once in a while, I'll get a mom that'll that'll say to me, <laughs> I heard you on Pansy Politics. I'm like, really? <laughs> Great. Yeah. Not that. to pigeonhole our demographic, but it sounds right. I mean, That's I would right. love to say I heard a handsome 24 year old came up to me on the street and was like, hey, Tim, I heard you on Pants. We politics. have those. I'm sure you One do. of these days. Yeah. If you're out yes. there, handsome 24 year old male uh, listening to Pants Dude Politics, yeah, show me a DM. Say, we're here. Yeah. You know, we celebrate Present. we celebrate girl power and politics talk. Present and, and counter for. That's right. Yeah. So maybe they're out there, but it has tended to be moms. But I'm honored to be back. It's great. We love to have you here. Now, we are talking during a tough week for anyone like you who has seen the trajectory of the Republican Party and wants it to be mm-hmm. better because Liz Cheney lost her Wyoming primary on Tuesday. How did you feel when you heard the news? R.I.P. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I, uh, I, this is we'll get um, uh, my cat. My Catholicism is going to come back up here. My you know wayward Catholicism. But yeah, I just think that Liz Cheney had to die for the for our democracy to live. You know, um, mm-hmm. we're going to raise her from the dead and she's a martyr on the cause, St. Liz. And, uh, you know, I'm feeling OK. I knew it was coming. I had a little text message yeah. chain with my buddies. And uh, we had, uh, you know, somebody was like, so I'm feeling pretty good. I think that Liz might like lose by only 10. And uh, and then, you know, someone else said, well, let's just do a little, let's just have a little wager. Like Price is Right style. Everybody guess. I had the highest guess at 36, losing by 36. And I think I'm going to come in the winner on the text <laughs> chain. So I was very clear eyed about where things uh, were and, and how things are going. And so, you know, as much as MSNBC and the MSM wanted to put the camera in my face and, you know, see my tears, I'd come to terms with the state of the party quite a while ago. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, God love her, though, for fighting the good fight. Uh, but, yeah, no, that's just not where we're at right now. Your wager is a funny segue because I wanted to ask you about the fact that her concession speech slash here's my next chapter referenced I thought a line right from your book why we did it when she just very clearly said this is not a game and you talk about the game a lot in your book and I wonder how that moment kind of landed with you I also noticed that I was like is Liz Cheney reading the book I'm also wondering I I I hear never I feel like the bulwark on our podcast like uh, I don't know if this is true but I think we were the first ones to start saying Liz Cheney's going to follow this guy out of the gates of hell and now I hear that everywhere and I was like I think I think these congressmen are listening to to the bulwark podcast but um yeah I I I liked that she talked about the game uh, because it's true it's kind of sad and banal right and pathetic to think that all of these grown ass men are treating our very democracy that they all claim to care about, you know, as a pawn in their stupid political game. Uh, but it is what's ha- is an accurate assessment of what's happening. And I think there are a lot of other commentators or, or, or pundits that want to make, you know, uh, particularly on the right, that want to justify, you know, the opposition to Cheney and, and justify the rationalizations and contortions that, you know, the anti-anti-Trump crowd goes through by, you know, making this about something more than that. But, but it isn't, right? Like, these guys want power. They want to win. Uh, they've been conditioned to. Um, this has been a long time coming. It's what I get at and why we did it is, is you know, for a long time we've been treating politics like a, a game. And and we're at a time now where the, the ramifications of this game are, are very serious. Uh, they've always been serious, but they're very, very serious and existential now. And I, and I was happy to see that Liz Cheney has is a rare person who has the clarity to see that uh, and to really condemn these guys for what they are, uh, which is just 
you know, shallow, uh, uh, self-interested individuals who who are, who want power and are and, and don't uh, care about what the what the results of their actions are. Let's get into your book. Some. It's an uplifting one, isn't it? Didn't right. You, was it a nice, well, did you hear my like having it? Yes, absolutely. Why we did it? A travel log from the Republican road to hell, where you really excavate your own participation and sort of the motivations. You did a lot of interviews, both on the record and off of uh, those around you. You know, it, it reminded me so much of a book I read in my twenties by David Brock, another sort of revelatory, redemptive. I, I've seen, I've seen my role here, and I just thought. It's so funny to me because I think the national perception of the Republican and Democratic parties, especially like when I was in my 20s and working in D.C., was that to a certain extent, you know, left over from the Clinton era, the Democrats were the calculating power hungry ones and the Republicans were the earnest ones motivated by religion you might not have agreed with, but motivated by this underlying very like religious, ethical kind of undercurrent. And I think you just break that all the way open. and. You know, it's just it it was so fascinating to me and it's still fascinating to hear you talk about, you know, Republican consultants that don't vote for Republican presidential candidates. And I think you do a good job of really talking about like, well, some of this is motivated by career, like you just kind of locked into this career or you're locked into the access or all these sort of different levers of human motivation come to play to these really toxic results. Yeah, I never read Brock's book. Um and uh, I maybe should have before I wrote mine, uh, but I always loved the name of it, Blinded by the Right, because I like yeah. that Blinded by the Right. And uh, so this has been a long time coming, for sure. I, I do think there's been a re- real switch, though. You know, sometimes liberals or progressives will want to say, it's always been like this. The party's always been like this. And there are elements that were always there, for sure, right? And I get into that in the book. But I, I think that you hit on something, this kind of flip between when we were growing up, you know, there, there was this critique from the right of the left was about moral relativism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, you know, there was a corrupting element of moral relativism. And, you know, there was the right that argued for, you know, whatever, moral righteousness and turpitude. Uh, what was the old uh, Bill Bennett book was, you know, the book of virtues, whatever it was yes. called, right? Yes. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. And so this is and so it was all always a little phony, um, but 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 there was always elements of it that were g- genuine. And so this is what those of us who grew up and, you know, were dorky young Republicans were kind of taught, right, was that, you know, this is you know, we are, you know, we care about virtue, we care about rectitude. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it's these whatever modern day postmodernists that, that are the ones that, that actually don't care about the, the, the difference between right and wrong. Uh, you know, obviously, there's always a little bit of BS on that. But it's now the interesting thing is that it's, and this developed as I came into politics, basically, this starts to flip, you know, during the mm-hmm. during the Bush era, and, and then particularly, you know, in the in the Obama era, which is actually it's the Republican strategists and the people in Republican Washington who stop caring about about all of that, about right and wrong, and who who become completely enamored with, as we talked about the game, completely enamored with winning, completely enamored with losing. Who cares if what we're saying is like what we're feeding the base is a little bit of a lie? You know, we just got to take mm-hmm. Obama down a peg. And and I care more about the clever tactics and strategies than I do about, you know, doing be, do, doing the right thing. And you fast forward all the way to now and, and, and the roles are completely reversed. Now, in some ways, it's self-harmful. Democratic 
staffers are so earnest, right? And are so mm-hmm. focused on social justice and like, we need to do the right thing that sometimes it, it, that accrues to the damage of their candidates, right? And, and Republican candidates have become totally nihilist. They're like, oh, uh, you know, everything is relative. Who cares? You know, even the law is relative, right? The rule of law doesn't even matter now. You know, if he's the president, he can, he can get away with it. And so I, I think that this sort of culture, I had a front row view of how it just slowly debased over time from, from maybe being disingenuous, but actually caring about values to, to now actively vice signaling and actively saying that like caring about, you know, you see this on Twitter sometimes for conservatives, caring about values and stuff is just lame, right? <laughs> like these Democrats can't even take a joke anymore. Like even the mm. normal good Republicans right there, there's another, there's a book by Noah Rothman, who I usually like, but he has this book coming out right now that the whole book is about how like Democrats can't take a joke. They're the new Puritans. And it's just like, what? Oh my God. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I, you know, actually caring about being nice to people is bad now. Like, I, you know, are hamburgers eating people? I, you know, like the whole, <laughs> we're in a total upside down place. And, and, and I think that that was, you know, everybody wants to attribute that just to Trump. But I, I think that that was this sort of was a long time coming. And Trump just took advantage of a very debased conservative political culture. Yeah. Fertile field. Yeah. Well, your book talks about all the people who enabled Trump to do that. And you provide this taxonomy of motivation. Like, here are the categories of people. And and I feel like each chapter is filled with both empathy and indictment for the folks in those categories. I'm curious, which group did you find the most difficult to understand and write about? Yeah, I loved Michael Cruz. My, I was like, my Catholic family will love this. He's like, you're a priest and confessor in this <laughs> section. And I was like, yes, that's what I was going for. You know, we're getting in the confessional, all right, people. Like, let's just let's, let's hash this out. The demonizers were the one that I had the big was the biggest surprise to me and was was the one that I had the most trouble understanding because it was just so separate for me. And so just, let me explain. We know that, again, the book is not about voters, right? I think a lot of times voters are the victims of the Republican and political mm. class who lie to them, right? Like that's not who this book is about. The book is not about the people who actually hate the, la- you know, who, the, the, the uh, Stephen Millers, right? I, this book is not about them. It is about people that I knew or I thought I knew who, who were gentle people, nice people, who, who I thought were like me playing this game of politics where we disagree with the Democrats, you know, I, but I, I don't hate them. I never hated Obama. You know, if Obama was like, do you want to come watch a basketball game with me? I'd be like, that sounds so cool. Like, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Like, you know, I bet we'd get along. I never had that feeling. I never really hated Bill and Hillary. You know, I mean, there's things, things that would annoy me or great or whatever, but I, you know, I just, I, I never had that. And for me, I was playing this, and and, and obviously that there, this is you know not necessarily a compliment to me, but I'm just trying to be honest about my perspective. Like there's always a little bit of WWE, you know, in what we were doing, right? Like it was performative, right? I had Democratic friends, and and so and I, you know I'm gay, and I lived in a big city, right? This notion that the cultural left was out to get me never resonated. So I was just it kind of took me aback when I started interviewing my my former friends and former friends who are, are like me, you know, DC living. I don't have a DC anymore, but you know, like upper middle class doing well for themselves, you know, have democratic friends. And, and they, after a couple of drinks, they would just start to say, ah, 
the you never Trumpers and the Lincoln Project and the media and like you're all out to get us and the mask is off and my kid has to read these DEI packets at school and woke culture gives me no choice but to side with Trump and my wife's mm. friends think I'm a racist and I interviewed my friend Caroline and she's like you know I'm so sick of the finger wagging from the I don't need you know drive a Prius with my coexist sticker you know drinking my coffee culotte out of my paper straw and I'm like what are you guys talking about? I, honestly, I, that, it was just like they were in a completely, these people that I thought were my peers that were, were speaking as if they were in a foreign country from me. Like, I don't like paper straws either, but Donald Trump, uh, you know, we're going to support Donald Trump because of it. I, it's insane. And so that was the hardest for me to grasp was just that, that over time, slowly but surely, their resentment of their mm-hmm. fellow elite peers had begun to consume them. To such a degree that, that that they were able to rationalize voting, you know, supporting Donald Trump, uh, who you know is uh, much more, you know, uh, patently cruel and than and mean and mean spirited and and hateful and divisive than any of these people that these folks seem to be mad at because whatever uh-huh. they're they're uppity in their Priuses. I <laughs> just like yeah. I don't know. The whole thing was hard for me to to understand, but I I came to get it. But but it caught it just it really that was the one that caught me the most off guard. It feels like the resentment when you said that. That's the exact emotion I was thinking about in my head. Is that there's just so much resentment, and there's a part of me that wonders, you know, having also lived in that DC culture and coming from a different background as a Democrat than a lot of my Democratic colleagues. You know, I did not go to an Ivy League school. I lived, I grew up in Kentucky. And so I was an outlier as far as background among my Democratic colleagues. And I can see like, if you're coming from a rural community, if you did not go to, you know, a school in the Northeast or a a fancy school, as I would say, Look at us. We're such outsiders. We can't even name one of these. What are these schools called? I know, right? Aired? I, don't, I don't even know. What are these prep schools called? I can't even name one. I oh, I definitely didn't know or go to or know anyone who went to a prep school or a boarding school. And so it's like I can I mean, I got into some pretty intense disagreements and in in particularly in my Senate office because I felt like the judgment directed at my part of the country was really intense. And I, so I think I can sort of feel the bubbling undercurrent of where a lot of that resentment comes from. And I I don't condone it, but I can understand it because I do think a lot of it is baked in. It's like you go and intern at the Senate. If you're from a conservative state, it's sort of like and you're interested in politics and you want to go intern as a college student and you want to start on that path. Like what's available to you? You're going to go to a conservative Republican, your conservative Republican congressman, and that's how you're going to get started. And it's like it's like it feeds itself until you're in those the sort of um, inertia that you describe of like, well, I built this whole career and it pays my kids colleges. And so what am I supposed to do? Go start over at a Democratic congressman's internship? Yeah, I also, I guess I get where the resentment comes from. It's just that it was allowed to spiral so much in people mm-hmm. that do exist, you know, have pretty great lives, right? Like, and, yeah. and coexist with Democrats. Like, like they're not I don't know. You know, I, for me, I, so I'm like the opposite for me, right? I came from Colorado. I lived in the suburbs and um, I'm gay, right? And so I was a Republican, but didn't, you know, come from this, you know, kind of culture, you know, Southern culture uh, or, you know, anything that, that where I would feel looked, looked down upon. So I kind of look at that and I'm like, I just, 
I just don't know, you know, as a gay person, I'm like, you know, we were being denied marriage rights for a while. And, you know, none of us were storming the Capitol. <laughs> so, right. I don't know. I understand well, anyway, the resentment. City, I understand the resentment, but it's also kind of like, you know, guys, can you just take a step back? But I think they all feed, it feeds itself. Right. What I came to learn is, you know, so you yeah. were coming from Kentucky, then worked in Democratic offices and you, you, you know, the times you probably felt like maybe you were looked down upon or whatever, but you also met good people, I assume, exactly. and, and you, know, you were able to see the humanity of people. And so these folks now, now we're also separate that they live in their little conservative bubble. They go to gate, excuse me, they go to conservative Republican, Republican bars, they have Republican uh-huh. friends, they have uh-huh. Republican social media circles, and they sit around and they convince themselves of this, right? Like, yep. like, that, like the, the left starts to become like, uh, you know, a caricature. a caricature. Yeah. Jinx. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so, yeah. And, and I think that unfamiliarity breeds resentment, you know? Mm hmm. So as you go through these categories, you talk about the demonizers, you talk about the people who think of themselves as saviors, like I've got to be here to help check his instincts, a bunch of categories. Throughout all those categories, it really jumped out at me how often you used drugs and addiction as a metaphor. And I was thinking about it because I, I think that metaphor, at least to me, implies a tenuous relationship with agency, at what point did these folks start to lose agency or did they? And I wonder how you think about that. I actually have a ton of empathy for the rage addicts who are being fed this by people in the political class. Right. And so I, I don't, you know, I think that's a really challenging question when it comes to the people who are on the mall. Right. And so, you know, one of my characters mm-hmm. is Caroline, who I mentioned, right. She was a good friend of mine and worked for moderate Republicans. And she uh, found herself on the permit in the mall on January 6th. And, you know, this is a person who has agency, uh, you know, who's made, who made choices that I just fundamentally disagree with. And who I think should feel some responsibility for what happened that day. And I tried to share that with her when we met for a very, very long, many, many drinks session in Santa Monica that I write about. Uh, and I, you know, I was trying to, you know, help her accept responsibility for that. It didn't work. Uh, I don't think. Um, but you know, hopefully maybe I made a little progress, uh, but the people, you know, from the other side of that coin, I, you know, I'm always like, should we, you know, obviously I have no empathy for people who like committed violence against police or whatever, mm-hmm. but if you're the shaman who's just, you know, some guy with wearing horns, who's been convinced that, that the country's being stolen from you. And now you're, you find yourself in the Capitol. Like, should that person really be going to jail? Is that, is it that person's fault that they're there? I guess they, they have agency. I guess so. But, but it's really Donald Trump's fault, right? Like Donald Trump is the reason why that, why January 6th happened. And I think that a lot of people throughout the country have become addicted to their machines and addicted mm-hmm. to the, the rage that we're feeding them on their machines. It is exaggerated at times, lies at times, unnecessary, not relevant to their lives, right? And so, I, you know, I, I think that they need, uh, it is a real metaphor because I think that they need addiction therapy to get off it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and the, the joking phrase that people use is like, get out and touch grass. Like they need to get out and touch grass, but maybe they need to also, you know, have do some sort of group therapy. And so I, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to, say that they don't have agency they do but i think in a lot of ways they're being victimized by the republican political and the conservative media class what about those people themselves though like does Car- did caroline lose agency in this process i don't think so no 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 i mean i i, I think that they're 
the dealers. Uh, you know, mm. <laughs> I, and I don't think Car- Carolina's. But listen, we've all case. watched The Wire. That's more complicated too. Yeah, no, sure it is. Yeah, it is right. Like dealers are users, and and it's all you know. Sometimes you need cash, and I, you know, I, but no, I, I, these are all the people that I talk about that I interview are all capable of recognizing what they're doing, and and mm. I, and I think that they've been caught up in this culture where that that not just excuses but incentivizes you know feeding this rage juice uh, to carry the metaphor um uh to the audience uh but i, I mean i i don't i don't i don't I, I understand them and i want to create and i i endeavored in the book to to make them three-dimensional humans and to not caricature them so the liberals reading this don't just kind of get uh get exactly the character that they want right, of evil right, republicans right. But so I think I feel like you did that, by the way. Thank you. Except for Sean Spicer. Well, Just, no, I think oh, Sean's bless. the only one, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. I'll take that criticism. <laughs> It's not criticism. It's just an observation. I felt like people needed. A, I felt like people needed a little candy. You know, it's a oh, depressing yeah. book. It's a depressing Bless. book. And I was like, Sean gave uh, people, uh, but he is kind of a caricature. So in some ways, mm-hmm. I did. I created a real human uh, description of him because he's become a, his own caricature, which that which happens to people uh, in media. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So so in that sense, I, I think that the, these people are all all have you know, a devil and an angel on their shoulder. I, they have good and bad inside them and are making bad choices. And so to that extent, I, I think that they I, I, they do have agency. So our book title is Now What? Yeah, I'm happy I've that started, you wrote that, not me. <laughs> I've started to think, you know, when we talk about the brilliance of our, our founding fathers, it was not in their solutions, but in their diagnosis of the problems of democracy that they really... They were at their best when they were like, man, what are we going to do about this problem? What are we going to do about this problem? Because I think we see it play out over and over again, all the things they were concerned about. I think your book is that. So where are you? Where are you on the now what? When you look at this trajectory, you have Liz Cheney's out there trying their best. You have people forming, you know, the forward party. There there's still people out there trying to do the work and also just the legal system seemingly moving the gears cranking up for some actual real life consequences for Donald Trump. Where are you on the, the now what, that what comes next? Well, you notice that's not in the book. Uh-huh. Um, the editor wanted a final chapter, a final now what chapter that would have competed with you guys. And I was like, Nope, we're leaving this, uh, we're leaving this book in the muck, in the mire, uh, because mm-hmm. that's the reality of where we are. And that was just, the point of this book is to be an honest assessment of the culture and not to have some Pollyanna view about how it's fixed. Uh, I have some ideas. Uh, but I, I think it's I, I just I want to preface this by saying that where we are at is generations in the making. Right. And, and I think yeah. that it's the one area the uh, my fellow never Trumpers sometimes misdiagnose this. I, I do think like if Trump just poof disappeared, that'd be great. But, uh, you know, I, it, it wouldn't fix everything. Right. It, it, it wouldn't even fix half the thing. Right? Like he has some unique derangements uh, and psychosis that I think that would protect some of the worst case outcomes if we just got rid of him. And so I think they'd be good. But the the culture that enabled him has been a really long time coming. And so it's going to have to be a long time fixing, right? Yeah, you know, my metaphor is like if you have a contaminated pool, you know, and you pour like a gallon of clean water in there, well, the pool's still contaminated, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's a, you have to, it, it takes a lot more than that to to fix it. So 
Uh, you know, some things I think creating spaces where people can disagree in good faith is really important. Creating, you know, trying to engender a culture of mutual respect is important. I, I think that on the left, sometimes uh, there's this temptation that I have, by the way, also, uh, I guess if I'm on the left, whatever you want to call me now, to just, you know, say that everybody that went along with Trump is evil and immoral and I can't mm-hmm. deal with you anymore. I can't look at you. I can't talk to you. We're not even... I'll treat you as inhuman. I think that's bad. I, I don't. I think that is exacerbating the problem. Like we need to recognize that people are complicated and 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 give people a path for redemption. I think there's certain things in our democratic system we could change. I'm pretty skeptical about the third party thing. I, I like the open primaries, the jungle primary thing, for example. As you know, we've seen Liz Cheney gets crushed by 40 points or whatever in a partisan primary, but David Valadeo in California as a Republican impeacher who hasn't shown as much courage as Liz Cheney, of course, but um, he wins in a jungle primary. Uh, and and I mm-hmm. think that, you know, a lot of the jungle primary, for those who don't know, is where all the Republicans and the Democrats are all together in, in the first round of voting. And then the top two, no matter what party they are, go on. I, I think that system could incentivize third parties, by the way. And I think it makes people, politicians, incentivizes them to talk to the median voter instead of the extremes. So, uh, you know, that I think would be good. I, I wish that there are some billionaires out there that would fund some media outlets that appeal to people on the right that are not based in conspiracy and hate. Uh, that would be nice. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, you know, I, and we also, this is again, Pollyanna again, but it, you just have to say it. Leadership matters. Being responsible yeah. matters. And it's not like the, the thing that isn't new is there are always people that were bigoted and there are always people that wanted to believe conspiracies were true. Okay, that's not new in 2022, right? What is different is that for a while, people in power felt like they had an obligation to to the whole country and to do things that were right and that they didn't just have an an obligation to be a mirror uh, to their own voters' grievances and and hatreds and and you know false beliefs. And and how do you find leaders who are willing to do that? Boy, that's a really inexpiable challenge. <laughs> Well, and I think that that is an excellent point to end on as we sit here with Liz Cheney's loss. That's still leadership. What she's done is still leadership. She didn't need to win her primary for that leadership that she's exhibiting right now to matter. That's not required of her or any of us, I think. The game tells you you have to win for it to matter. But the game is dangerous in our human brains, right? And I think that's what you do such a good job of in your book, say with title one more time, why we did it, a travelogue from the Republican road to hell that everybody should read, that I think that you do a good job of illuminating that. And we thank you for that. And thank you for coming on our show. Thanks so much. And I hope that even for non-huge political nerds, there are lessons because this is true in a lot of parts mm-hmm. of our life, right? Like you just, you're obsessed yep. with winning, obsessed with what, obsessed with getting recognition and and you and you block your brain out from thinking about you know, what the impact is of, of, of what you're doing. So I, I hope that people enjoy the book, despite the fact that it's depressing uh, and uh, <laughs> that there can be some things that, uh, that folks can take about it that's, that's relevant uh, to their lives. And I just, I appreciate y'all having me on. Thanks. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. 
Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Knowing as we do that you can't live in the woods. We both recently did take breaks from our daily lives to travel to New York City to see the revival of Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine's Broadway show, Into the Woods. You went with your sister. I went with Griffin. You were a devoted, devoted, memorized every lyric fan. I had never seen it before. So we had the full experience between the two of us. I have loved this show since PBS broadcast the stage version in 1991. I've I've had nice. the show with me for 30 years. Bernadette Peters was the witch in that version. And 
My mom loved it, showed it to all of her classes every year, taught a whole unit on it. It was just Mm. a fixture of my childhood and influences me in so many ways. I was thinking as we were preparing for this conversation about how when we first started the show, we talked about the Affordable Care Act. And I was like, it's kind of like the woods. There's some good things. There's some bad things. There's (laughs) there's some things that are neither. And I thought, like all the metaphors in my life, I can't unravel into the woods from my language and my perspective on anything, all of those little bits of wisdom that float throughout the show. It's just all such a part of me. So when I learned that there was this limited run revival taking place that had Sarah Bareilles as the baker's wife and Philippa Sue as Cinderella, I called my sister and I said, I think we have to go see this. I think we have to. And she said, no, I, th- I think that's right. We have to. Our trip was a little chaotic, but we had a really good time. It was wonderful to spend so much time with my sister and just extremely special to see it on Broadway with her. Yeah, I definitely fell for it hard, the the entire musical. I, again, had not seen it. I knew it was about fairy tales. That's about the extent of it. Um, But it is Griffin's favorite. He loves it. And so I knew we had to go. And I have had a lot of Broadway experiences, but I think never as pure as this one in that I saw a show that has, like, proven itself to be good and strong and amazing. But I saw it not knowing anything and with a supremely, supremely good cast. And so it was just, a, it was really amazing. I will say, not only did I fall for Into the Woods, I fell for Sarah Bareilles very hard. I, it's not that I didn't know her and love her. I love her. I think she is just the most beautiful singer. She sings one of my absolute favorite Christmas songs. And I've seen Waitress, not with her, which I now really regret, but I never seen her live. And I think her voice, I am just completely enamored and in love with her performance. I cried so hard at her last song, I think, is it Moment in the Woods? I just thought it was so beautiful. And and she captured so much. She, you know, she sang the song so well, but it also sounded very much like her and her t- style of singing, which is, it's hard to describe. I read a write-up yesterday and still can't quite wrap my brain around what she's doing there. But it's brilliant and it's affecting, I can tell you that much. But I agree, it's like once the... Once you have the language in this show, you see the metaphors everywhere. I, I posted on Instagram. It's like the Matrix. Like all of a sudden you have, oh, yeah, that children will listen. Children will listen. And all these like little pieces and lyrics and insights that you're like, man, this is very relevant. It's funny that it's Griffin's favorite show and that you loved it so much when you were younger because probably just because of my stage of life, I felt so much like it was a love letter to parenting just to how hard it is. It's making me tear up a little bit, like how complicated it is and and how it holds all these light and dark pieces in this act that you're trying to do and this this task you're trying to accomplish. And I just thought it was so beautiful and he captured it so well. It is for sure a meditation on families and intergenerational trauma and parenting itself. I think it has so much to say about COVID-19. I I saw it mm. so differently this time than I ever have before because of how relevant I think it is to. I think The Giant is very much just a, a fantastic container to consider how we respond to external threats that we don't understand well. Yep. Of course, he wrote it against the backdrop of AIDS. And so mm. so there he has always said, you know, it's about more than AIDS. But there is just this allegory component to it that that felt fresh to me because of COVID. And I think reviving it right now is brilliant. 
I heard it differently as a mom, too, though, especially the song where the baker and his, you know, the the character who turns out to be his father are speaking to one another about running away from problems and and what that Mm. creates. That had always been kind of a mentally skip it moment for me watching it as a kid. And that was probably my favorite scene uh, as we saw it on Broadway. And it's just the design of it is the way that they modernized it is just so smart. My sister and I were delighted by every little decision and touch. And we were shocked at how many people around us were like you who'd never seen it before. The people behind us said that they were getting ready to leave at the end of Act One. And we turned around and we were like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Don't go anywhere. There's There's so much more. And this is where it gets really important. Yeah. But so so for it to appeal to both you and me is, is such a testament to what they've done here. Yeah, we should say that Sarah Bareilles is only there through, I think, September 4th is what I read. But they have just announced an extension cast because it's going to be longer than they thought it would be. It's going to be there through um, parts of October. And I think if it remains popular, perhaps longer. But run, don't walk to see it if you can, because it really, oh, God, it was so, so beautiful. I felt like I like got therapy, but also worked some like felt better in a really good way. Like it was joyful, but I felt like I I cried and and relieved some stress. It just man, it was so so good. And the cast has recorded a cast album, which I'm simultaneously excited about and a little sad because when she was singing that song, I thought, I can't hear this again. Well, it turns out I can. Um and I probably will listen to it a million times and strip every piece of emotion out of it. But that's okay. I just yeah. Cannot recommend enough. I don't think the emotion can be stripped out of it. I do okay. think there's so much there. Again, I've been living with this for 30 years, and I learn something new and experience it in a different way every single time. It's so good. Now, I recognize that a small percentage of our audience is actually going to go to Broadway and see Into the Woods. So let me say this, too. I love this show. I could talk about it for uh, – I could do a whole podcast that never ends on Into the Woods. That's how mm-hmm. much I love it. The bigger thing I would love to communicate today is – If there is a thing that's your thing, grab your people and go. It felt really silly to me to make this trip to New York to see a single Broadway show. And I can't put into words how delighted I am that we did it. Yep. It is worth the money. It is worth the time. And I get there's tons of privilege speaking here that we were able to do this. But whatever it is, it is just so worth it to have that instinct. This would be great. Like, as much as you can say yes to that instinct, I, I cannot tell you how thrilled I am that, that I took this time with my sister to see this thing that's so special to me. Because I had, you know, I had a friend that just went and saw Red Hot Chili Peppers for the first time. She was so excited. Her whole life, she'd wanted to see them. And, you know, my husband and I were talking about this. It's like, you know, this, there's some real surviving a pandemic energy out there right now. There's no frivolity after you've lived through two, 2020 and 2021. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Like. Let's let's be done with that. Life is short. And I, you know, I told my husband this morning, I feel like in a lot of ways, people are understanding what I learned in a very hard way with the school shooting, which is everything can change. Mm-hmm. Everything can change so quickly. I mean, I feel like that's in, in into the woods too, you know, like it all can change. And so life is to be lived right now. And so I just thought, yeah, I was I didn't regret a single moment of Griffin and I's trip to New York, I regretted not taking Amos more than anything, too. So I agree. If it's your, whatever it is, um, Into the Woods or or Red Hot Chili Peppers or I don't even The care. new bakery it, downtown. Like, it doesn't have to be a big cares? thing, right? Just, yep. I think Take when, your when you feel, 
I want to experience this thing with this person, whoever it is, however little sense it makes. That is the message of Into the Woods that you keep going back. Mm-hmm. And and I think that just continuing to go is a really beautiful and, and truly political act also. Yep. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We will be back in your ears on Tuesday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Emily Neasley. The Pettons! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Catherine Vollmer. Amy Whited. Jeff Davis. Melinda Johnston. Ashley Thompson. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.